Earl and is beginning a new Finding the Rock tonight. All of you that are here to go through this final Finding the Rock of the year, can you just stand up and we're going to pray over you. Come on, stand up. There you go. There you go. All right. Earl, which way are you going? Back there, all right? Head back there, Earl. Lead them along the way and give them a hand as they go. There they go. That's a good group. All righty, how many of you are ready to go through half of chapter two tonight? I know I told you Sunday the whole thing. I can't and do it justice, but we're going to get half of it done. And it's great stuff, so I want you to stand with me and let's pray one more time. And we're going to get into the Word. I'm so thrilled to see this many people here just to go through the Bible. This tells me, this, this is one of the earmarks of a healthy church. This, when people are hungry for the Word. And this is on a Wednesday night during school. And you know what? God's going to bless you for it. So let's, uh, let's pray together and then we'll get into chapter 2. Lord, we thank you right now that you've got a word for us tonight. And you're raising up an army, raising up a family, raising up a church that is going to make an impact and is making an impact. And we pray that tonight you'll speak to us. Now, will you just breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, I open my heart to your word. Speak to me in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. You can be seated. Let's... Uh, a quick recap, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians is Paul's first letter. It's probably the first epistle, it is the first epistle of the New, Tes New Testament. It's the first one. It's the first scripture written to Gentiles, which be us, okay? And so we're going to look tonight, now we're not going to be talking specifically about the Lord coming back. But if you'll read chapter two, and I encourage you to read ahead. And again, I would read first Thessalonians through every week until we're through this series. I mean, it's very short. I think 79 verses and the chapters are short. Uh, this chapter tonight is 20 verses. I think the first one was 10 or 11, something like that. It's very short, very easy to read. And accustom yourself to getting up in the morning and reading the Word of God. Have a little philosophy. No Bible, no breakfast. Just, just no spiritual food, no physical food. Just get into the habit because you must be in the Word. You've got to keep yourself strong. Now, so we're going to look at uh, the Lord's coming back, a stimulating truth. The return of Jesus is the overarching theme of 1 Thessalonians. Now, last time we looked at the Lord is coming back, a saving truth. Tonight, a stimulating truth. But a saving truth was last time. Here's what we saw. Very important, church. Jesus is shown to be co-eternal and co-equal, equal to God and co-existent with the Father. A cult, any cult will always take away from that. But true New Testament teaching and divine revelation says Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal, and co-existent with the Father, and never let anybody dumb that down in your mind, okay? Now, we also looked at the million-dollar theological words of election, 
and foreknowledge. We ended with Paul bragging on the Thessalonians' faith and their boldness. And chapter 1 closed with the promise, thank God, that we shall be delivered from the wrath that is certainly coming upon the world by the, by the return of Christ. That is, we will be delivered from it by the return of Christ. The wrath of God must come upon this world because God must judge sin. All right? So it's coming. Wrath, um, powerful word. Now, in chapter 2, Paul begins with a brief visit to recent history. He's, he's stirring up their memory of when he came and first uh, visited them. So 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, read with me. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. What a great statement. It's a wonderful thing, folks, to realize that our labors in Christ are never in vain. You may not always see the results, but it's never in vain. Okay? Vain means, and I hate the word vain, I'm afraid of vain. I thank God that God makes our work worth it because vanity is a terrible thing. Not being in love with yourself, but vain meaning ineffective, foolish, worthless, hollow, or empty. The idea is of futility. The picture is of the mouse on the hamster's wheel. Running all the time, but getting nowhere fast. Okay? And please understand with me tonight that when God is with you, you are delivered from futility. But until you're saved, you're living a life of futility. The whole thing is vain. The whole thing is vain. Now, when God judged his people, he turned them over to futility. That was one of his judgments, meaning that their lives would no longer be fruitful. Here's where we read it, Psalm 78 32 through 33, in spite of this, it says, in spite of this, all the goodness of God shown to them, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days, what did he do? He consumed their days in futility and their years in fear. We could say he consumed their days in vanity, in vain living, where after a whole life, they had nothing to show for it. You can be a billionaire and reach the end of your days and still have lived in futility because you've got nothing of eternal value to show for it. This is one of the judgments of God. And and, and I'm going to be honest with you tonight. It's one of the things I would fear most. To me, to labor in futility would be a curse. i got to know that what I'm doing has eternal value. Okay? Now... On the other hand, the blessing of the Lord brings fruitfulness and success. Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, even in the presence of red-hot persecution, was met with great success. And not just success in a worldly fashion that is recognizable on this earth, but fruitful for all eternity. He was blessed with success. Now he next reminds them of his condition at the time of his revival or his arrival at Thessalonica. What condition was he in when he arrived there? Verse 2, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi. Remember, they came from Philippi to Thessalonica. As you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much 
conflict. Now, here's the way Paul came marching into town. Bearing in his body what he told the Galatians or described to the Galatians as the stigmata. The stigmata. The slave brands of Jesus Christ. Remember when he said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you had taken off Paul's shirt and turned him around and looked at his back, it would have looked like a road map. So many times had that lash gone across his back, torn his flesh open. Jesus was lashed 39 times. Paul was lashed 39 times, five times. How you even live through that is a miracle. But he said, he came into town, he was nothing physically to write home about, I promise you. Something was, he had an eye issue. He was aching, afflicted, hurting. He had been in prison. And I think there was a tendency, as a matter of fact, he even said so. There was a tendency when you saw him to kind of turn away. What a man of God he was. Greatest Christian, in my opinion, to ever live, Paul. Now, they arrive from Philippi, having been beaten, imprisoned, and unjustly accused. They've been manhandled and mauled and hounded out of city after city. The offscouring of the earth is the way he described it. They were knocked down, but never knocked out. They arrived at Thessalonica filled with power and filled with joy. He said, we were bold. And he said, I want you to remember how bold we were. Now, the word bold includes the idea of speaking without reserve. I mean, he let it go. When he preached, he did not hold back. He was bold. He told you the truth. Nothing but the truth. Boldly, Paul had spoken to King Agrippa. Can you imagine going before the king? You think you wouldn't try to kind of hone your words a little bit in front of the king? And what about the crazy lunatic Nero? How tempted would you be there to say, well, you know, I better just kind of hold back a bit or he may take me out right here. No, Paul let it go. He had boldness. Holy Ghost boldness. He was utterly unintimidated by the pomp by the ceremony that surrounded him. We're told in Ephesians 6, 18 and 20, his boldness came from prayer. I really think that part of the problem with the church in the West now, because the church in the West has gotten so weak in so many areas. Now, there are some churches that are strong, as we would say in East Texas, strong as bear's breath. But there are other churches and denominations that have pulled back and really become intimidated by the culture. And I'm going to tell you, I believe part of that is because we've given up prayer. When you bow your knee before God, you will stand before men. I'm telling you, boldness comes from prayer. No, no matter what the circumstances were, Paul and the other apostles always spoke freely and they always spoke with great boldness and that was one of the earmarks of that early church and they covered the known world with the gospel and they were accused of turning the world upside down. Actually, they turned it right side up wherever they went. Now next, Paul addresses 
his integrity. He's going to talk about his integrity. He says in verse 3, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Now, that's talking about himself, his inner man. Error, uncleanness, or deceit. That all has to do with your integrity. Now, when he uses the word exhortation right there, our exhortation did not come. The word exhortation means to call aside or to appeal to by comfort, consolation, or instruction. So you see a brother or a sister that are struggling, you call them aside, call them to yourself, and you encourage them. All right? That's the word. Now, Paul's former colleague Barnabas had been named the son of consolation for his ministry of comfort and encouragement. Don't you love encouragers? And don't you love comforters? And don't you love consolers? Don't you love it when they give you a call? And, hey, what's going on? Oh, not a whole lot. Well, listen, I just called to encourage you. And you want to say, hey, encourage on. Everybody needs it. And Paul said, we came to you with exhortation. Paul lets us know that his sole purpose was to win souls to Christ. That's what he was all about. His life had been totally free from anything deceitful, anything defiling, or anything doubtful. He's just telling us the truth about himself. He never resorted to miserly manipulation, dastardly deceit, nor was he impure in his motives. He never tried to work you to get something out of you. That matters. So often today, can we be honest here tonight? We see sordid tactics of manipulation used by some. I'm not saying everybody. Some are right and clean. But some use tactics to wrest money from the gullible for their own selfish gain. You send in your check and your runaway child's coming home. You send in your check and the spouse that left you is going to come back. You send in your check and who knows, you're going to jump up out of your wheelchair Now, what happens to those people when they send in their check and it doesn't happen? They walk away from God. See that? There there is truth and there is manipulation. And so Paul says, there's manipulators out there, but I ain't one of them. They will answer to God for such deceit, those that do it. There's going to be a day of reckoning, a real day of reckoning. And if you work God's people, worked them manipulatively, just to get their money. There's going to be a day of reckoning. But not Paul. His ministry was not in deceit. He told the truth. Next, Paul talks about a sacred trust. Read verse 4 with me, would you? But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Now catch this. The word approved that he uses right there, we have been approved by God, means to be tested. It means we have been tested by God. We have been tried by God. Now, here's what he's saying. We're not novices. We're not amateurs in this thing called ministry and the Christian walk. No, we're not green. We've been around a while. We've got some miles behind us. We've got some steel in our spirit. We've we've got some scars on our back. We're not novices. We have been tested, tried, and proven. And folks, we need to know, our God tests us. Now, 
Meaning this, he, he will allow us to go through some tough times. He will allow it. If I told you anything else, I'm lying to you. He will allow you to go through some tough times that test your faith. And as you are tested, it puts something in your spirit nothing else can. And it reaches a point where God says, all right, you've been through the fire, you've been tested, the impurities that were in your life have bubbled up to the top of the gold bar, which is you. You know, when you, when you uh, smelt gold, you put it in an oven, and you turn that fire up so hot that anything impure in it rises to the top. And then they got a little skimmer that just skims it off. And then you come out and say, now it's pure gold. Well, see, God allows us, he will allow us to go through some times of testing that impurities rise to the top. And the Holy Ghost is there and skims it off. And when you come out on the other side, he says, tested, tried, proven. Now watch this. He had been saved at, for about 10 years. Paul was saved for about 10 years before Barnabas first sought him out at Tarsus prior to his first missionary journey. For 10 years, he was just him and Jesus and with, with the brethren growing in grace, growing in his spiritual life not in any kind of a major act of ministry. Ten years. You can read about it in Acts 11, 25, 26. And then he had years of discipleship. He had years of study, years of prayer, and years of humble service behind him before first being launched into missionary work. Paul, the apostle, had to be tested just like us. He was no different. He was a normal man. Now, the Bible teaches that ministry is a trust. I'm going to tell you the truth about ministry tonight. It is not a party. It's not a career choice. You don't look at a list of possibles, lawyer, doctor, minister, you know, CPA. I think I'll choose minister. No, you better not. You better be chosen not choose <laughs> because the ministry is beset with perils and it's beset with pitfalls. Critics abound. You're a target. One of Kathy and I's favorite cards comes from the far side. Remember the far side cartoon? And there was this one card, two deer standing there talking to each other in the woods. And one of them's got this great big target on his chest. And the other deer says, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. Because it makes it so much easier to take you out. And we send that card to ministers. <laughs> because when you stand for God, you got a target on you. And a lot of what comes at you is going to come from church people. It's going to come from those who profess Christianity. Um, discouragements are plenty. True friends are few. You're going to experience the lonely whine of the top dog. Leadership is lonely. Leadership is challenging. Leadership is trying. It must be taken seriously and with great resolve or you will not stay in the saddle. The Bible clearly commands never place a beginner into a top ministry position. You know why? They won't handle it. 1 Timothy 3, verse 6 says, 
An elder must not be a new believer. Don't you take a new believer and say, wow, you've got great promise. There's a destiny on you. Here, let me put you right into leadership. What happens? He might become proud and the devil will cause him to fall. I've seen people who, who you can't let them. Now, like Brendan preaches for me some. I want you to know I'm not talking about him. All right. But I've had people preach once who couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle people coming up saying, boy, that was great. Couldn't handle it. They went wacky, became legends in their own mind. (laughs) I'm serious. It's amazing what people cannot handle. And so you've got to be prepared. You've got to have some steel in you. I was talking to a pastor last night whose son is veering towards the ministry. And he could put his son right now into a large church. And I said, don't do it. Wait till he's got some miles on his shoes or it'll ruin him. Paul said, you'll fall into the condemnation of the devil. You'll start thinking you're such hot stuff. God's anointed opponent. God's man of faith and power for the hour. You start thinking more of yourself than you ought to and the devil blows you away because you get full of pride. So you grow into it. Paul had been tried, tested, and proven to be the real deal. Not only was his integrity undoubted by those that knew him, it was also undaunted. Paul was not a man afraid of men. Hallelujah. The Bible says the fear of man will bring a snare. If you're afraid of men, you will not live for God like you should. If you're afraid of the opinion of people, and why should you be? They put on their pants one leg at a time just like you. They're no different from you. Watch, and their opinions are as fickle as the weather. They like you one day, don't like you the next. Patch on the back one day, stab you in the back the next. Why would you care what they think? They're not going to be there at your judgment. Paul was not a man afraid of men. He was not a man pleaser. He was a God pleaser. And church, listen, any church that's going to really impact the world has got to be a God pleaser and not men pleasers. Our churches are tumbling around us because they're afraid of what men think. Who cares what men think? They're going to go back to the ashes and to dirt from whence they came. Why? Care what they think. But it's a powerful thing, isn't it? You can be around some people and catch yourself going, man, I don't want to look like one of those in front of them. And it's something that can be a snare for your soul. And I understand that temptation. That's why you've got to tell yourself, speak up and don't be afraid of what men think. It does not matter. The great apostle Paul was never intimidated by a crowd or by the furrowed brow of disapproving men. I know what it's like to walk out and preach to people staring at you with a furrowed brow. Not you, but I've been in some churches. No, I'm serious. Every once in a while, somebody will be out there. But not very often. I just look at the ones that are smiling at me and keep on going. But, but it, I've been around, I've, I've preached to congregations that were not happy people. God's frozen chosen. There wasn't, you couldn't squeeze an amen out of them. You know, a bunch of people doing this. <laughs> I preached in a church once where all the elders were up against the back wall looking at me like, 
like I hope he does not do what I'm afraid he's going to do. You know what I did? I did what they were afraid I was going to do. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and it was one of the greatest altar calls I've ever given in my whole life. It was in a Bible church that had never had an altar call, ever, in their history. And boy, those people hit that altar, rich people, fancy people. I mean, in the parking lot, all there was was Mercedes and Lexuses and Beamers. And those people hit that altar when they were given the chance. And I saw, don't be afraid of men. You just let it go and let the, and let the chips fall. Now watch this. Yeah, Paul was never intimidated by the furrowed brow. When he preached in Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica he was not concerned whether or not his message pleased men. Uh, compromise, so beloved by the politician, has no place in gospel preaching. None. The gospel is not presented to us in accommodating shades of gray, is it? It's presented in stark, clear, simple, black and white. People are either saved or lost, period. You're not in between. You're either going to heaven or hell, period. There is no in between. Something is either true or false, right or wrong, flesh or of the spirit, good or bad. There's no in between. Jesus is the way, not just a way or one way. He's the way. This is gospel preaching. The gospel is concerned with the truth, and anything that contradicts the gospel is a lie. I really believe Oprah hurt herself when she did this. There was a woman in her audience, and she got into a confrontation with this woman on national television. The woman said, I believe Jesus is the only way to salvation. And Oprah said, he can't be the only way to salvation. I think that that was the beginning of a hurt on her show because that wasn't true what she said I got nothing personal against Oprah at all but that to a national audience was an awful thing to say because anything that contradicts the gospel God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life <clears throat> there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved um so I, I winced and I, and I grieved over that statement because of all the millions of people watching. But let God be true and every man a liar. Uh, the gospel is concerned with truth and if anything that contradicts it is a lie. Well, Pastor Jeff, that's just not very politically correct. I know and I love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. So Paul asserts, we speak, here, listen to what he says, we speak not as pleasing men, but God is who we want to please, who tests our hearts. Now next, Paul tells the Thessalonians what he shunned. Verse 5, for neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Now, when we see what we see in Paul that we admire so much is that he shunned all guile, all gain, and all glory. The three things that religious deceivers most commonly seek. They want guile, gain, and glory. 
Religious deceivers seek that. They want all the attention on them. But a real man or woman of God don't want the attention on them. They want it detoured up to him. Now, first, Paul used no flattery. We use flattery all the time. We do. Come on, fess up. I had to admit this to myself today. There's times when I've done it, even lately, people walk into church, we lie. What a beautiful dress. And inside you're going, oh my gosh. We lie, don't we? But that's a good lie, Pastor Jeff. Well, now watch this. We tell people complimentary things in order to get something from them. That, that's flattery. And the Bible says that flattery is very dangerous. You guys, the wrong kind of woman is an expert at flattery. A good woman will tell you the truth in love, but a bad kind of woman, read about her in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Flattery is her stock and trade. You know what you really look like, and she lies to you. <laughs> hunk a hunk a burning love. Boy, you are good looking. And you're going, well, I've never thought that. Who's she talking? She is setting you up, dude. Paul refused to butter people up. Now listen, Paul refused to butter people up through flattery manipulation. He never tried to get something from you by lying to you. Paul goes on to reveal that flattery in a religious setting is often like a cloak that hides one's true intent. Here's what the New Living Translation puts it. I love this. Uh, it says, God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. Now that's, that's good. Did you know that was in the Bible? There it is. We were not buttering you up to get something from you. The covetous person that flatters treats other people as though they were mere things to be exploited. Such a person has no God but himself and his desires. And you know what? Again, I'm going to say, they're going to answer God for it. If you flatter people and manipulate them and try to work them to get something from them, you will answer to God for that, especially if you do it in a spiritual context. Paul goes on to say in verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from men. We don't want men's glory. Either from you or from others. When we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now, he's saying we weren't with you to gain your admiration, to impress you. We weren't out to impress you with ourselves. We didn't throw around our degrees and pedigrees and credentials and accomplishments and all the churches we built and all this other stuff. No, we, didn't, we weren't there to impress you with us. We were there to impress you with our Savior. We wanted instead for Christ to be glorified among you. So we didn't point to ourselves. We pointed to him. These people, man, I see them in especially religious periodicals. At the end, they got 10 names, 10 names in front of their name. Bishop, pastor, prophet, apostle, evangelist, pastor Smith. And incredibly gifted, incredibly overwhelmingly talented, they say. And I just want to go, oh, Lord, don't say that about yourself. Brag on Jesus but 
It's, it, I, I have canceled one publication because it had ads like that in the back. It was so bad. I mean, 10 names in front of their real name. Just get to it. Tell me who you are. Tonight's a salty night. It's just been good from start to finish. <laughs> right? Furthermore, he could very well have demanded money and goods for their ministry. Uh, the Bible clearly teaches you shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. That's very simple. The laboring ox has a right to eat some of the corn from the field of his labor as it falls down in front of him. He says you shouldn't muzzle that ox. Let him eat as he pulls that plow. Let him have some of what the field is yielding. And the Bible uses that for ministers. But here's Paul. Paul says we didn't even take advantage of what was lawfully right. When we were with you, we might have been burdensome to you, he says, but he wasn't. He labored in making tents when he was among them. And he, he moves now from reminding them of what he had shunned to remind them of what he had shown. What had he shown? His love and his life. He says, and th this is powerful language here from a man of God. We were gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. I don't like being around rough, harsh, mean-spirited people. Because they'll cut you all up. You cross them, and they'll make your day. Ruin your day. But look what he said. When I was among you, we were gentle. How gentle were we? like a nursing mother cherishes her children. That is gentle. So affectionately longing for you, he goes on, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. You'd almost think a, a woman was talking here. So loving was this man. Paul was a multi-gifted man. He was a superb scholar, first-class theologian, a giant intellect, and a stellar organizer. He was multi-talented, multi-gifted. He could wear a lot of different hats and do an A-plus job with it. And you know, people with these kinds of gifts tend to be neglectful of people or rude to people or even use people. But Paul didn't. Paul loved people. He loved the lost. That made him a great evangelist. He loved saved people. That made him a warm-hearted pastor. He loved people. Now, he got mad sometimes. You, you, he's a real man. But he loved people. Paul tells them that he cherished the church. That word cherish comes from a word meaning to warm. The word is used of a bird gathering its young under its feathers to protect the hen gathering her chicks under her wings that Jesus talked about. He said, that's how I cherished you. I, I took you under my wing. And some of us older saints, listen, we need to be taking some of the younger ones under our wing. Just bring them under your wing, teach them, pray for them, let them know they're loved in the church. Beyond that, Paul gave his life for them. He says, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us. 
People can give without loving, but they cannot love without giving. Paul loved, so he gave. He didn't give out of selfishness to get something back. But a self-serving motivation had no place in his life. Everything he did, because he loved people. He was not in it for what he could get out of it or them. He genuinely loved the church to the place of being willing to die for the church. Die to his flesh, die to his own will, so he could serve. Does that sound like Jesus to you? Can can we look at Paul for a minute and just, just pause here at the end of this message? Look at him for a minute and go, look how possible it is for the Savior we serve to rub off on us in a way that you look at you and you think of him. You're one of his kids because you remind me of him. Paul moves on from what he had shunned and what he had shown to what he had shared. You remember, brethren, our labor and toil, laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. As we've already mentioned, he liked to pay his own way. When he was short on funds, he resorted to the trade. He had learned when young, a tent maker. Now, here's what I want to look at. The word he used for labor means to beat. As, for instance, the beating of the chest. Okay? It suggests the weariness of laborious toil. Blue-collar sweat work. That's what he did. The word for travail carries the idea of painful effort, tiring labor, and difficulty. Taken together, we know that Paul and his entourage worked hard to pay their own way. They went to bed tired, if they went to bed at all. Because sometimes he talks about laboring night and day. There was no laziness among them. They were not living off of entitlement programs. When they could have done it on their own. But that's another day. That day is coming. I want to preach on that. Finally, we see Paul's conscience. And we're going to close with verse 10. Here's his conscience. You are witnesses and God also. How holily, holily, and justly, and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Everybody say with me, holily. That's not easy. That doesn't just roll off the tongue. Holily. Now, think of these first six words. Your witnesses and God also. Can we say that together? You are witnesses and God also. Now, here's the deal. Paul was very aware the Thessalonians were watching him, but so was God. This is the root, folks, of a genuine fear of the Lord which is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs 1, verse 7, and other places in the Bible. Now, I want you to read this with me, because this is the fear of the Lord, and this is the way Paul lived. The fear of the Lord is the continual awareness that God is watching and weighing every one of my thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes. He's watching them, and he's weighing them in the balances. Okay? When you, got, you keep that in your mind, it, it cleans up your life. And Paul said, we're very aware that you are witnesses, Thessalonians, and God also. That's the way he lived. 
The word holily means to be pure from all crime. Religiously observant of every duty. Careful to fulfill every obligation. Particularly, the word holily pertains to the discharge of one's duties toward God. You, you live your life as if you know God is watching. Then, Paul lived in the fear of the Lord. He knew that one day he'd give an account for his life. And so will you and so will I. Thus, Paul and his friends lived holy lives, or they lived holily. They behaved devoutly and justly and blamelessly. In our day, I got to tell you, we see a tragic lack of any fear of God at all. This Sunday, I'm going to preach on, and I'm really praying about this, but it's time. I I want to. I see the need for it. But I want to preach on honor. The loss of any sense of honor. The difference between the sacred and the common. It's like it's all gotten muddled. And people walk into a church like it's uh, some bar or some uh, McDonald's. And there's no sense uh, that it's the house of God. Just as an example. And we got to get back our sense of honor and holiness. And, and that there is a difference between any old building and a building that is used for the glory and ministry of God. There is a difference. But men in our day, they behave as if there is no God, no eternity, no divine observer of their actions. And this, the Bible says, is the life of a fool. The word for justly, and I'm closing here, means straight dealing, straight shooter. It has to do with the careful discharge of our duties to men. Not lying to them, not cheating them, not uh, manipulating them, not flattering them. Being a straight shooter. What you say is what you mean. What you mean is what you say. What you see is what you get. Paul worked hard to keep a clear conscience toward both God and man. His integrity revealed in the things he shunned. The things he showed and shared have all been covered in the first half of chapter 2. Let's stand together. And... Isn't the word a good cleansing word? Doesn't it cleanse us? It cleanses us. Now, next week, Paul's crown of rejoicing at Christ's return, his crown of rejoicing was you and me and his own flock. And we're going to look at that, and it's powerful. Don't miss next week. But let's thank the Lord God Almighty. We see in Paul's life that his integrity caused him to shun some things, show some things, and share some things. His integrity. And I want us to pray that God will help us to look at this amazing man of God mirroring Jesus Christ and say, Lord, as Jesus rubbed off on Paul, may Jesus rub off on me. Can you just pray that prayer tonight with me? If you're a child of God, a child of the King, pray with me and say, Lord, as you rubbed off on Paul and he took on your character and your likeness, may it be so with me that when people see me, they will say, you remind me of him. Lord, say, Lord, only you can do that. And I ask you to do it in Jesus' name.
Amen.